Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy out of the Chuva Center. This is another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Thank you for joining us. Today is Purim, the holiday of Purim. So Purim Sameach, Chag Sameach. As they said when I was growing up, a Freilichen Purim, a Yiddish for Happy Purim. I want to talk a little bit about some of the traditions of Purim. Um, my favorite, Mishloach Manot, the sending of portions, uh, if you will, is one of my favorite traditions because on this day we are asked to take two kinds of food, two different kinds of food, put it in a little bag or on a plate. Um, when I was growing up, it was a sort of paper plate with cellophane paper around it. And we have to give it to at least one person to fulfill this mitzvah. I love this because it is a way to for us to step out and to connect to other people, to give to other people, to sustain other people in this idea some food. But it doesn't have to be just food. I remember many elaborate mishloch manot that sort of had toys and books and different things in them or whatever, but we reach out to people around us and we share so that we can all have uh, a feast in Purim, which is very important. It's one of the traditions that Purim asks us to do, one of the four mems. The four mems are the Megillah, uh, reading the Megillah, the Mishte, which is now this feast, Mishloach Manot, the sending of the portions, and Matanot Levyonim, gifts for the poor. So giving those parcels of food allows everybody to have a feast. And we do so because we also don't want people to ask for it. We don't want people to beg for it, people who don't have. So it becomes a tradition of just giving. So everybody has some. And in that, we connect to our generosity. We connect to people. We bake foods. Uh, it's one of those traditions that I remember encountering new foods that I didn't know from different traditions because we had people come and give Mishloach Manot from traditions that were not our own Ashkenazic traditions. Um, and I used to look forward to it every year. It's, it's really one of the most beautiful um, traditions that we have. Then we had the giving money to the poor. I was just talking about it in the IG Live this week, that one of the traditions that I remember from my own upbringing is that when we would come for the Megillah reading, there was these tables in the lobby that we would give charity for. And it was one of those chances that all different kind of charities, they were like, I don't know, 20, 30 different pushkas, different little boxes of charity that we would give money in. And you could choose which to support. And I used to love reading about each one of these little pushkas, each one of these little boxes, and who they're giving to and what they're giving to. Uh, and my grandfather would sort of take uh, a good amount of money and sort of like um, make it into five, uh, you know, five dollar bills or five franc bills or five euro bills or 10 euro bills, whatever. He would um, break it up so that we could choose to give to different charities around. And I remember really liking to sort of to read all the different kind of things that people are doing for charity. Um, so it's important even in our joy, of course, to also remember those that do not or those who support others. Then, of course, we have masks, the costumes, which is part of Purim, which is really what I want to talk about today, this dressing up these costumes. It is interesting that traditions of masks and costumes uh, in human culture are very, very old. 
people of course have longed always for a type of alternative reality to the one we live in masks appear in festivals and rituals and theaters and so many other places we also of course find it in many spiritual traditions as well so what is it that makes it so attractive and so important that we keep seeing it over and over and over again is it creating an alternate reality, alternate identities? Is it experiential learning? Is it a subversive ritual, maybe a demonic one? Um, what can masks teach us? Is it maybe an angelic, angelic ritual? So for many, of course, um, mostly we look at masks as concealing something, uh, evoking a kind of cheating or mistrust. In Hebrew, the word masicha is, of course, related to the word Masach, which means screen. So mask and screen are interlinked in that sense, something that sort of obscures something. Even in English, the word mask or the French masque or the Italian mascara, probably coming from uh, medieval Latin, masca, uh, which means, in fact, witch or specter or nightmare. Uh, also, most probably influenced by the Arabic, mascara, which means buffoon, clown, not serious, or something that's sort of uh, strange and odd. And it's also related, of course, to the word mascara that we use today on our eyes. Um, makeup, of course. There's even a German scholar I read that claims that the word mask is originally derived from the Spanish, masque la cara, literally meaning more than the face or added face. All these come to a very similar feeling of concealment, impersonation, cheating, lying, of course, behaviors we usually reject. The mask evokes an alternative reality, but not necessarily a positive one. Interestingly, of course, in Latin, a mask is persona. And the origin of this word is in two words, persono. That is, to be heard through or to conduct the voice of. The mask therefore is an instrument through which the actor, um, the actor's voice is heard on ancient Greek and Roman stages. Hence the meaning of the word now refers not only to the theatrical mask, but of course to the personality as well, or the personality it represents. So the question that will guide us today, does the mask conceal? Or does the mask reveal? Or both? In Eastern traditions, we learn that we strive to reach a state of non-self, a state of complete attachment to the universe without the self to hold us back. Lao Tzu teaches that we do not have an inner true self, that who we are is what we do. The mask we put on then serves us as a way to interact with the world. This persona, this mask, for example, for Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, was the social face the individual presents to the world, a kind of mask he writes designed on the one hand to make a definite impression upon others and on the other hand to conceal the true nature of the individual. It allows us to pass in the world and to hold a different personal space. Though many people see this as a negative approach, a cynical one, it can also be positive. How we decide to interact in the world is part of the choices that we have to make every day. A type, it can be a spiritual armor, a way to protect ourselves, 
we act like we want to to be safe, to blend in, reserving our inner world to those we trust and cherish, those who won't judge us. These masks we put on also allows us to express ourselves through ritual, like, hi, how are you, so forth and so on, daily rituals and the daily interactions of our lives. And yet, of course, it's hard not to see that by doing so, we also reveal what's under the mask, our intentions, our desires to belong, to feel part of. Italian professor Alessandro Pizzorono writes, The mask hides and reveals at the same time, but it does so differently, according to the situation and the different points during life. To begin with, you find a mask in the family. You think that no one has one. Then you realize that others are putting it on. And if they put it on a little at a time, you begin to understand above all when they are right in front of you. Thus begins the long and torturous path of apprenticeship of the mask. You are observer and actor. You try to understand what is behind what others are wearing and at the same time try to understand which one serves you best to protect yourself from others. And you put it on and you take it off. And when you are an adolescent and you yourself are unsure of what there is behind the mask, you decide to put it on and you are unsure of what you are really trying to hide. Then you look for the most bristly or scary or the gayest and ceremoniously misleading mask possible to wear. You keep everyone else at a distance while you watch yourself, little by little, grow into the mask, which you have only partially created for yourself, but which willingly or not, you are forced to wear. In many ways, a lot of addictions start by this split. A lot of addictions start and are maintained by pretending to be something that we're not. When we have this mask for this person, this mask for that person, when we can't feel that we can be authentic, when we are ashamed of things that we've done, that's when we want to bury that pain and that's when we find addictions drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, whatever it is. It is when we are constantly separated by different parts of ourselves. This split is where it becomes very toxic. And we have to be very careful about that. And in fact, part of the healing, part of living and recovery is to be more authentic, to take off a lot of these masks that we've put on through our lives, that we've tried to be just good or even just bad and we've done things, or we couldn't talk about things, we couldn't be ourselves. We try to be so many things for so many other people, trying to be the good boy or the good girl, trying to do what our parents want of us, society wants of us, while being promised some kind of happiness and yet not finding it. As we grow up with these masks, we pretend as we try these on. I personally grew up knowing that I have to wear a mask to be safe. That was the only way to survive. The only way to survive was to pretend to be something else, 
because I knew something inside told me that if I didn't pretend, I would not be safe and I would not be accepted by my community, which is exactly what happened. Perhaps we all need to employ these masks and perhaps that's why we are also fascinated with them and real ones. I was also thinking when we're talking about masks of the work of Amy Cuddy. She has a book called Presence. Uh, she also has a great TED Talk. She's a professor and a researcher at Harvard Business School who studies how nonverbal behaviors and snap judgments affect people. She talks about putting on a behavioral mask of sorts. She called some of them power poses and low power poses. Power poses are poses that sort of make you feel better and in fact trigger a hormonal response in our body. By accessing our personal power, we can achieve presence, the state in which we stop worrying about the impressions we're making on others and instead adjust the impressions we've been making on ourselves, is what she writes. These power poses that she talks about, taking on a kind of mask for two minutes, alters the levels of these hormones in our brains significantly and impact our behavior as a result. Does it work? Science says yes. So in a stressful job interview situation, people who practice these high power poses were seen as very successful candidates, even with others who had qualifications or experiences that were better than those, but they practice low power poses. She proves that they had more presence, people who practice power poses, more confidence than the other candidates. Amazing, right? The mask that we put on, the behavior, the costume, if you will, the spiritual costume, if you will, that we put on changes not only our brain, but looks inwards and changes how we feel about ourselves and also then affects how we can be more successful in this world. On the other hand, I'm also thinking of a really uh, other great book that I really love called Confessions of a Mask. This is um, from the Japanese. It's a book by uh, Yukio Mishima. And it depicts there beautifully the mask that he wears in order to present himself and the persona it affords him. Sometimes an armor, sometimes a barrier. He walks around with it, also believing everybody around him is also hiding their true feelings from each other. Everybody participating in this sort of reluctant masquerade is written about the book. Observing the masks and the costumes of people around us, the costumes people put on, the masks people put on, it's hard not to see how people channel their inner desire that otherwise they don't feel permission to. Even in jest, it's hard not to see that the irony, that the costumes they think conceals them the way they dress up, in fact, shows their deep desires, even repressed ones. It shows them completely while they think it hides them, and there perhaps lies the magic of the mask. Masks, of course, physical ones, also have a mythical power. When we put them on, something changes. Body language changes, we change, we allow ourselves to show more of ourselves wearing it. We are embodied by it. 
in many cultures, shamans, guides, doctors, spiritual leaders use it to create a connection to the spirit world, ancestors, spirits, divine messages, and of course protection, both spiritual and otherwise. They are ways for us to connect to otherworldly existences. They can transform us to a different plane. They are making us able to see through their eyes what is hidden from us usually. Observing as something else can help also us see ourselves from the outside. By doing so, we can detach from our own perspective and gain a new one. Free from our own judgment and more importantly, free from our own excuses. We can see ourselves as others see us perhaps and then gain some clues as to what we want to change, what we want to maintain, what we want to grow. Looking through the eyes of the mask, we gain a different perspective. By using a mask, we then have two faces or more as I mentioned before from the Spanish. Two spirits, or at least two perspectives, or at least two spirits, reminding us that it is all connected in us, spirit and body, me and others. My outside and my inside are all interwoven. Taking off a mask as well as putting it on is an action we take, one that also reminds us that we have sovereignty over it, that we have ability to do so, that we should be aware of our ability to do so, that we're not trapped by the mask. We're not trapped by ourselves. We can change. We have the power to. We can choose and express ourselves however we want, whether it's Purim or not. I was talking to Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer this week about what do we take the next day of Purim? If we spend a day in a mask or in a costume for one reason or another, how about the next day? What can we take for it for the next day, for the rest of our life? We have the power to do so. Like many ideas in Purim, we are faced with the opportunity to create a better life. A life of growth and a life of meaning. Purim is about redemption, Pouring is about finding our voice. Pouring is about uh, the ability that we have to change, to change not for ourselves, but to help others, to really embody ourselves. We always have a choice. We can always choose. So in choosing a mask, we should always be aware that it may reveal more than it conceals, of course, or that it conceals something that we want to work on, or that we can have a choice on how to present to the world, and the effect it has on our life, hopefully for the positive. Thank you for listening. I'm Rabbi Igiat of the Chuva Center. There's a lot more to say about this, but this is the start of the conversation. A happy Purim, a Freilichen Purim. I really hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening again. See you next week.